If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14 as we continue through our study on this gospel. You'll remember that Luke has just finished a long section of teaching from Jesus on the nature of the kingdom. And now he's getting ready to introduce another section of teaching that will go through most of chapter 14. But he does so in a different context. He gives us a context now in which Jesus is invited to dinner and what he finds there is not simply a meal waiting for him. Luke says, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 14, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? But they could not reply to these things. God bless the reading of his word. Again, this dinner scene will unfold over the next uh, at least half of the chapter. And it becomes an opportunity for Jesus to teach those around him. And in these opening verses, which largely sets the stage for the teaching to come, we nevertheless see this emphasis on the Sabbath, on its nature and its usage. And what Jesus wants to do is correct the obvious misunderstanding of those that he is there to dine with about what the Sabbath is, about what the kind of priorities there should be for the people of God on their day of worship. And in doing so, Jesus not only shows us how God is welcoming of sinners, but also how God's people should see their day of worship, even in this new covenant. The Sabbath, as we will talk about in just a few minutes, is intimately interwoven and connected or or organically related to the old covenant, of which we are no longer a part. And yet there are principles here that Jesus lays down that have meaning and application for us today. So as we unpack these verses, thinking about the Israelite day of worship and what it should be, we also want to think about our own day of worship and what that should be. We want to begin thinking through these verses by noticing first the context of holiness. The context of holiness. What you have presented in the opening verse is this this context of holiness in which uh, these events and the teaching that follow takes place. We have a holy Savior on a holy day doing holy things in the midst of those that are not holy. And it begins with this comment about the fact that this is taking place on the Sabbath. And the reality is, if we don't understand the context in which these things are taking place, then we're going to miss the significance of what follows. So we begin by noticing that this is taking place on a sacred day. A sacred day. Luke says that this took place one Sabbath. Now, you may know, you may remember we've talked about this before in Luke's gospel, but if you're not familiar, uh, then you'll need to know that the Sabbath was the weekly anchor for the social and religious life of Israel. The Sabbath was essential, it was vital, it was important, in part because it was given as a command by God to His people. It wasn't just something they came up with. In fact, right smack in the middle of the Ten Commandments, 
preceded by the, 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 the earlier ones that come dealing with the nature of our vertical orientation to God and the ones that follow with our horizontal relationship to one another comes this hinge commandment, the Sabbath, whereby it, it draws from our vertical relationship to God but has implications to the horizontal relationships one another. It comes right at the heart of them where God tells His people to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Obeying this command, therefore, along with the rest of the law, was an expression of Israel's faith in and love for God. So to put it simply, how one regarded the Sabbath said something about how one regarded God Himself. But what exactly did it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean to remember it and keep it holy? Well, in Exodus 20, God elaborates. He says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who was within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This might seem normal to us to have a day off work, to have a weekend, but it was virtually unheard of in Israel's day. No one took off work unless they were sick or traveling. So this was meant to be a gift to Israel. The same God who had previously said in the scriptures, in the law, right at Genesis 1 and 2, that work was a good thing. Okay, I know some of you feel like work is the result of a fall, but it actually comes before the fall in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be working as well uh, and ministering to one another and other things. But here, the same God who said work is good now also says rest is good. Working hard is good. It honors me. But stopping from your work is also good and honors me. And so th- the reality is that the Sabbath was really about showing in many ways who God was and who our relation, what our relationship to God should be like. And in part it said, look, remember that work is not the end all of your existence. Your life is not just about your job. Your life is not just about your occupation, whatever that may be. Some of you have on forums now for occupation, student. Your life is not just about your studies. There is more to life than those things. God makes clear that Certain things could and could not be done on the Sabbath. Even the animals were meant to take a rest. Even those foreigners that would be in Israel's midst. Nope, they're not doing work either. It is the Sabbath and everything stops. So this emphasis is on rest. And again, there was a practical element to it. Everybody needs to take a break. But there was, there was something far deeper as well. For this physical rest was meant to point to a spiritual rest for the people of God with God. It was to remind them of God's redemption from Egypt, but also His spiritual redemption. That they were to cease their own labor of of seeking to be right with Him and rest in the labor that God Himself had done. It was meant to remind them that God would provide for them, therefore they could have confidence in Him and therefore rest in Him. Now, by the time that Jesus is on the scene, we have the synagogue movement that had been established. This, you'll remember, began when the people of Israel were out in exile away from the temple. They could not participate in the sacrifices. Therefore, they established this pattern of gathering together on the Sabbath day. 
to pray together, to sing together, to read the scripture together, and to receive teaching together. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? It was not uncommon for people to join with one another in homes to end the Sabbath together in fellowship around a meal. Now, the whole point here is that what is taking place is good. It, it, was, it was good for these religious people to be gathered together in a home. It was good for Jesus to be there. This was a, a way to honor God. But that's not the reason why they invited him over. It was a sacred day. It was a holy time. It was meant to be a holy event whereby the people of God were encouraged, gathered together with their thoughts and their minds, drawn, their hearts drawn up to God. But that's not what we see happening. Nevertheless, on this sacred day that would turn out not to be a sacred day, we do also see a sinless teacher. A sinless teacher. Luke says, One Sabbath when he went to die at the house of a ruler, of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we would admit that our tendency is probably to avoid being around people that we don't want to be around. Our, our, our tendency, whether it's at work, is to make sure we're not in the break room when they are. If it's at school, we go down the other side of the hallway from them. If we're at home, it's to screen out their calls with caller ID. Maybe it's because they, some of you are, are know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe it's because they grate on our nerves because we differ in our political opinions. Maybe they irritate us because they don't discipline their children the way that we think they should be disciplined. Maybe they're simply just unkind towards us. Or maybe we don't see them as being especially spiritual and more or less a waste of our time. Now, there could be any number of reasons for why we avoid people, but basically, if we don't like being around someone, we try not to be around them. We try to avoid them. That's our natural, sinful tendency. But think about what's going on here. We're, we're, Luke already sets it up by telling us about the Pharisees throughout this book. Not all of them were bad, but by and large, they saw Jesus as a threat to their understanding of God and the life of God's people. These were vocal enemies of Jesus. They were sometimes angered by him. They most always taught contrary to him. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that these guys are watching him. Jesus knows that these individuals are out to get him. Jesus knows, as we will see in just a minute, exactly what is going on in their heart. And yet he goes to spend time with them. He doesn't avoid them like we would be tempted to do. In fact, he willingly goes to them. He goes to befriend them. He seeks them out to try and share the truth of God's word with them. And in that context, I can only imagine how tempted Jesus would be to not show them compassion, to not spend time with them, but to simply write them off as a waste of his time. And yet he doesn't do any of that. From the sinlessness of his life, he displays an infinite amount of patience and grace, talking to, working with Pharisees and others like them. He never descends to their level or responds with vitriol. Instead, he displays compassion and mercy and love. And this not only tells us something about Jesus and about the nature of his mission, but it says something to us. It sets an example that we should learn from about how to spend time with people that aren't like us, but still need the message that's been given to us and should be preached by us. 
Jesus has absolutely no fear of spending time with and eating with sinners. In fact, it's from his sinlessness, the, the nature of his mission to save sinners, to come and identify with the ungodly in intimate terms that he might be their stand-in before God under his wrath, that he seeks out those that would even oppose him. On the cross, Jesus remained sinless but was considered sinful as he made atonement for the sins of people on the cross. And as he makes that movement towards the the cross, seeking to save sinners, he seeks sinners on the way. He is telling people about him and about what God requires, not their work but their faith in his own work to save them. Why did Jesus seek after sinners? Well, you remember what he said earlier in chapter 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to save sinners. He will will accomplish that salvation on the cross, but in the meantime, He is seeking them out to tell them of this good news that they might repent and believe the gospel and be saved. How are they going to hear the gospel and repent and be saved if they are not told the gospel, if someone does not spend time with them and seek them out and proclaim God's word? Jesus, the sinless teacher, was with sinners on a sacred day, and it's in this context of holiness that we see Jesus confronting what is unholy in his host. Here, the second thing that we see is not only the context of holiness, but now the confrontation of hypocrisy. The confrontation of hypocrisy. Jesus is obviously invited to this man's house, and when he comes, Luke says, the host and his friends are watching him closely. They are waiting to see what he does. Now, we don't know if he's, actually eaten, if he's actually eaten or not. I think the way Luke tells it, I think this is right at the beginning. That the food's not been served. Nothing has happened yet. Jesus has come in and he notices immediately there is a man in need. Now, we'll come back to this in a minute and, and dwell a little bit more, but I just want you to notice how Jesus looks at people. It's not in terms of evaluation or, or their helpfulness to him. It's based on need. He walks into the room and the first thing he does is see a person in need and he zeroes in on them. He wants to go and meet that need. He wants to bring comfort or encouragement or mercy to them. He's looking to see where can he serve. And what does he see? Luke says, behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, that's an old word for what we call edema today. It's a condition where the body retains fluid in its cavities and in between its tissues, causing it to bloat. That can be an especially painful condition, but it's almost always a sign of something more severe going on in the body. So I want you to think about how how Luke sets the scene for us. Jesus is told, come to my house for dinner. He's probably been at the synagogue. Maybe he himself was teaching. And now that they're coming for this, for this end of Sabbath meal of fellowship and, and prayer and perhaps even singing together. But as he comes in there, there's already an air of scrutiny. And as he arrives, right in front of his face, behold, it's obvious, here is this bloated man off to the side with an obvious medical condition. Now, with apologies to a certain famous general, I think when Jesus walked in and surveyed the area, he immediately thought, it's a trap. He, he, he knew what was coming. He, he knew what, why he had been invited. It was, it was not for some holy sense of fellowship. It was not for the celebration of a sacred day. It was so that he could be put into a trap that could be sprung by this man in need of mercy. 
But notice Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, I want no part of this. Jesus doesn't run from the trap. Instead, as we will see, he turns the tables on them. They think they've put Jesus in a quandary, but Jesus just turns the whole thing around on them. He puts them into the trap, as it were. Luke says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. Why? Because they were ignoring God's clear instructions. They were ignoring God's clear instructions. Isn't it interesting, the Pharisees, at this point at least, from what we can see, they haven't said anything yet. Jesus just walks in, he, he looks at the face of the Pharisees, he sees the man with the condition, and it says, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. What is he responding to? Well, I think he's responding to the hardness of their hearts. The hardness of their hearts towards him, his message, and their fellow Jews that is all on display here. So Jesus just goes on the initiative. That they think they're going to have him on the defensive, and instead he goes on the offensive. He just asks, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Because he knows that's what they're trying to trick him with. You just remember back in chapter 13, he heals, and what happens? They get mad. They say, come back on one of the other six days, not the Sabbath to get healed. They already have it in their heads, no healing on the Sabbath. And here's the thing. They couldn't answer without looking foolish. Because you can go home this afternoon, you can, you can Google Sabbath commands in the Bible. You can read every command about the Sabbath, and what you will find is no prohibition about healing. None. God never says, don't heal on the Sabbath. You're not going to find it there. Nothing even comes close to it. See, the religious leaders and the lay people that were here were trying to get Jesus to break their rules trying to get Jesus to break their traditions and their regulations. It wasn't about God's rules and regulations. And the problem was that, G that, that these people had ignored God's clear instructions for the Sabbath and were instead focusing on their ideas and traditions. And that's what Jesus puts his finger on. He says, let's just be honest. Is it lawful or not to heal the Sabbath? In other words, lawful, show me in the law, show me in the word where one should not heal the Sabbath. And you know, he, he caught them. Because there's nothing in the law that says that. Nothing in God's law anyway. That's why Jesus heals this man. And, and I love the way Luke describes what happens. He says, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Now, I love that for two reasons. First of all, because I, I've seen people with edema. You can, go, you can Google this afternoon. I know you're tempted, don't do it now. This afternoon, and you'll see it, it's an obvious condition and it doesn't go away overnight. I mean, you literally have to drain fluid off people. If you want to know what that's like, there's some nurses here, and they'll tell you about probably taking care of people like that. But that's no problem for Jesus. Boom, he's healed, done. Amen. And, and as every healing, it is a pointer, it is a parable about the spiritual healing that Jesus does. So, so, so many of us are consumed with guilt and fear because of our past sinful life. And when we come to Jesus for healing, he doesn't say, I'm going to heal you a little bit. He says, boom, done. Sins forgiven because I have paid the penalty for them on the cross. But I love this for a second reason as well. Notice he took him, come here, he heals him, and then he says, go with God. He sends him away. Now, why does he do that? I love that part too. But, but why does he do that? Because I think these individuals cared absolutely nothing for this man. He was simply bait for the trap. 
And rather than have him stand there and, 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 and hear Jesus pointing this out to him and causing this man who already had this physical condition to now be emotionally wrecked knowing I've been used by these guys, Jesus says, why don't you just go home? Go on home. You've been healed. Go rejoice with your family. In other words, you don't need to hear what comes next. You sense not just the healing power, but the, the affection that Jesus has for people in that act. And it's the exact opposite of the Pharisees because they've not only missed God's clear commands, they've also missed God's compassionate priorities. They failed to embrace God's compassionate priorities. Jesus continues to press in on them. And it may seem like he's just repeating the same thing here for emphasis, but he's actually moving in a slightly different direction. Notice what he says. He took him, he healed him, and he sent him away. Then he said to them again, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. They still can't reply. They still can't answer Jesus' question. Why? Because the answer is obvious. Of course if their kid or their animal fell into a pit or a well on the Sabbath, they would go and they would dig that, they would get them out. They would throw the kid a rope or they would, they would climb down into themselves or they would have a whole group of people coming together on the Sabbath and doing that. Why? Because they would not be breaking any laws that God gave in the Old Testament about the Sabbath in doing so. God explicitly gives permission in the old covenant law for such acts of mercy. And again, Jesus is not actually asking whether or not they're going to pull the animal or their kid out of the well on the Sabbath day. His question is that he's asking, he's getting to look at is this, where is the mercy that should be in your heart? What, what did God say he wanted among all everything in his people in Micah? He said he wanted mercy. He wants hearts of mercy. Why? Because God himself is merciful. God himself is merciful. Therefore, his people should be merciful. Where is your compassion for those in need? That's what he's asking them. Are not people more valuable than animals? Are not people more important than the Sabbath itself? Well, that last line might be taken wrongly. It might seem dangerous to say. Obviously, God instituted the laws of the Sabbath. God is God. And we submit to his laws regardless of whether or not we like them, whether or not they're convenient for us. Nevertheless, Jesus asked the Pharisees in a different context this question. Don't you know? Don't you know? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, they have forgotten that the Sabbath was created for Israel as a gift to them. Now, it was not meant to be a burden to them. It was meant to be a gift, a compassionate gift. I mean, go back in your mind's eye to the book of Exodus. Think about where Israel was when they received this command of the Sabbath. They had just been slaves for a couple hundred years in Egypt. God liberates them, brings them to the promised land and says, now look, you've been working seven days a week for the last couple hundred years. Now I want you to take a day off once a week. Maybe you think about that. Their entire culture, their whole society at this point was a slave class. They had all been slaves. Their whole way of thinking about life is built around slavery in Egypt. And every day we get up and we work hard, far harder than most of us have ever worked a day in our life, 14, 15, 16 hour days. We go home, we collapse and we're done. 
And the only other thing that we're doing, according to Exodus, is making babies and crying out for some God to hear them and have mercy on them. And now God says, look, you don't need to work seven days a week. Take a day and rest. Let the animals rest. Those of you that are going to rise to, to, to positions of privilege, give your servants the day off too. Take a rest. And they would have been like, oh, thank you. Thank you, God. I, I, I can't believe you'd be so generous, so gracious in the, in the face of our taskmasters who would beat us with whips every day of our lives. Work, work, work. But the Pharisees missed this. They have a warped sense of priorities that pits things against one another that should not be pitted against. Things like holy worship and acts of mercy. Those two things are not at odds in God's mind. In fact, they are intimate handmaidens. So, so this is what we see going on in this passage. This is what we see Jesus calling them out on, how he is displaying the character of God in his actions and in his words. Now, what do we do with it? How, how do we apply these things to the here and now where we live today? This is the last thing we want to see as we consider the challenge for our hearts. The challenge for our hearts. And as we move from the there and then to the here and now, we first need to have clarity about worship. We need to have clarity about worship. When we think about understanding and applying principles that are tied to the Sabbath, we need to think about two things. First, we need to be clear from the outset that as the new people of God, we are not bound by the Sabbath laws that Israel was bound to. Why? Because those laws have been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Remember that the Sabbath, like all the other laws, was pointing to something beyond itself. Those laws were not an end and of themselves in Israel. They were rooted in the order of cre- they were not rather rooted in the order of creation as an abiding as an abiding command for all people. God sets a precedent and says, just like I worked and then ceased from my work, so also you will work and cease for your work from my people. But the way in which this is now applied is not direct because the scripture is clear that the Sabbath was not, was, was not something for all people for all time. After all, Abraham didn't have the Sabbath. Uh, Noah didn't have the Sabbath, right? Job didn't have the Sabbath. But more than that, it is called a covenantal sign between God and Israel. In other words, God says in the prophets, remember the Sabbath sign. Remember the Sabbath command because this is a demonstration of our covenant with one another. I am your God. You are my people. How will the nations know? You keep the Sabbath. And so now that covenantal sign again has been fulfilled in Christ. It was a physical rest pointing to a spiritual rest. And now that spiritual rest has come in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of God's compassion as we are able to stop our spiritual striving to make ourselves right with God and now we can rest in Him, trusting that He has accomplished the work for us. You say, well, well, how how do you get all that? Well, that's another sermon. But let me just get you to the end point, the last passage that I would show you as I would trace about four or five out through the Scriptures. Colossians 2. Paul is writing to a largely Gentile congregation. And what does he say? Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, that is, the Old Testament laws of food and drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
all of the feast days, the feast days, the weekly rest day. What does he say? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if we could see from the perspective of God, the cross as the focal point of all of history the glory of the new heaven and the new earth shining behind it that is made possible by that cross, then the shadow of that glory cast from the cross back in history, that shadow would be the law and the covenants that came before. They are good. They are holy. They are right. But they are shadows pointing us, driving us forward to the substance that is Jesus Christ. Practically speaking then, that theology is worked out, you see, in the book of Acts, in the life of the early Christians as well. We see in Acts that the Jewish believers at the beginning would both go to the synagogue, worship at the temple on the Sabbath day. They would gather together at Solomon's porch there and have fellowship and prayers, but then they would also gather together on Sunday mornings. Why? Why? Because Christ was raised from the dead. And they realize we are no longer the same old covenant people. We are now a new covenant people in Jesus Christ. So it was on Sunday that they would gather together as Christians for prayer, for teaching, for worship, and for fellowship. And here's the thing. Even though Sunday became their focal point, we see in numerous places that they were not limited to Sunday either. In fact, right at the beginning, daily it says, they were in one another's homes, praying and singing and hearing from the Word of God. Now, it makes sense then, as their spiritual descendants, that we keep with that tradition. In fact, I would say it would be foolish to intentionally say, though we have the freedom to do so, we're not going to worship on Sunday anymore. Well, well why wouldn't you? You you have have an unbroken line of believers from the first century to 2014 who have gathered together on Sunday mornings to, to, to consider the resurrection of Christ on a Sunday morning and know this is the new life we have in Him together as His people. Why would you intentionally cut yourself off from that? Now, that being said, if there was some reason because we were in a country or something that had laws and and a culture that was different and it was impossible for us to gather on Sunday mornings, we would gather on Sunday nights. Other believers throughout church history have done. And if that was still not possible, we would find some other night to gather on. The point is this, the day is not important. The gathering is important. It is the gathering together as God's people for worship, for fellowship. These are the things that are important for us and we must have clarity on that. It's not about the day, it's about what we do. But secondly, we need to show also a concern for mercy. When we gather together for worship, we must have a concern for worship, or excuse me, for mercy. Everything in this passage is driven by this deficiency in the Pharisees. They so desperately want to honor God, but they don't know God. They are his people by birth and ethnicity alone, not by faith. This is why their attempts at righteousness are twisted by the sinfulness of their hearts. They hold the Sabbath in a high regard, but they forgot something so much more important, what the Sabbath actually originally was given as, mercy from God. And so they don't show mercy to one another. And as we think about that, as we apply that, we have to ask, what about us? 
Are, are we moving towards this tendency of Phariseeism by being overly concerned with the ritual, with the form of worship, but missing the heart of it? That it's more than just about me and God and no one else. It is about gathering together as a community. Are we desperate to worship God rightly, but failing to see where the needs of mercy exist? Are we seeking a spiritual experience for ourselves, but neglecting those who are in obvious need around us? Or are we like Jesus, immediately aware of who is around us, what their needs are, seeking Him, seeking to help them in any way that we can? This week I read about the experiences of Dr. Legan Duncan while he was studying in Europe during seminary. And I was convicted when I read about this man named Neil and how he sought to utilize Sunday, the Lord's Day, as a day of both worship and mercy. Listen to Duncan's testimony. He says, when I was in Scotland, I was very often invited into the home of the clerk of session of Holyrood Abbey Church of Scotland in Edinburgh, where I attended. Now, for all of us here who are not Presbyterians, the, 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 the clerk of session is um, a pastoral figure who is given certain authority and responsibilities, not just over one church, but over multiple churches in a certain area. He, in fact, is the, one of the leaders among that session, that group of pastors. And if you want to know why all that's um, not going to damn them to hell, but nevertheless wrong biblically as a pattern for a church organization, we can talk about that after the sermon. We'll, but we love them. They're still saved. We'll be patient. So, so here he is in Scotland, and he's, at this, he's, he's, at, he's, he's attending this church, and he says that this man, this clerk of the session, this pastoral figure, he and his wife and family would welcome me in the home for Sunday dinner. And about 2 o'clock, the table would finally be spread, and it looked like a southern Sunday dinner table. And we would eat and talk and fellowship. And when the meal was finally over, Neil, the clerk of session, would excuse himself from the table. He would invite all of us to rest and make ourselves comfortable, because typically when you're invited into a home in Britain on Sunday, you're expected to stay the whole afternoon. But then he would excuse himself, and he would head to the nursing home, and he would visit as many people as he could there. And then he would come back, have tea with us, and we would all go together to the evening service. Duncan comments, I thought, what a great example that elder was setting. I'm not just using the Lord's Day as a day of rest, but seeing the Lord's Day as a day of worship, seeing the Lord's Day as a day of mercy. And I just have to think, boy, we've come such a long way from those first Christians, get just so excited at what God had done, so excited at the fulfillment of his promises to Israel, so excited that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and had ascended to the right hand of God, that they could not get enough of each other. That they were mixing and mingling in one of those homes as often as they could throughout the week, were glad to come together on Sunday and worship together. And I just have to stop and wonder, have we gotten to the point where we have forgotten that when we gather together for worship, it's not just about teaching, it's not just about fellowship, it's also about meeting one another's needs, about being merciful to one another. As we just think through some practical examples, understand that this is by no means a set list. Some of you are far more creative and come up with far more ways, but these are the things that struck me immediately. Giving rides to and from church for those people who might need them. Serving those who have a hard time getting out by after service, taking them to buy groceries for the week on their, after, as you take them home. Or look around and see those people who are in obvious need, not having much, and either invite them out to dinner or bring them over to your house. Again, these are just a few things. The possibilities are endless. But all of it should be driven by remembering and imitating Jesus' concern for mercy. 
Now, even as I read that, both because it welled up in my own mind and because I know human nature, the objection I'm sure came to at least some of you or will come later, I just have too much to do to do that on a Sunday afternoon. I have too many things going on. How could I possibly find more time? I mean, isn't, isn't Sunday morning enough? And I cannot sweep away every single person who would make that as a comment because all of you are different and you have individual circumstances on your lives. But for the most part, I would simply say three things. First, take some time to honestly evaluate your priorities. Again, we've come a long way from the frequency with which the early church gathered together. I wonder what's really stopping us from finding a way back there. More practically, if it seems time to be an issue for you, then think about what you're doing on Saturday. Have you filled up Saturday with so many activities that now work gets pushed into the Lord's Day on Sunday? You think about the fact that Israel only got one day off. By and large, in our culture, we get two days off. I know not everybody gets Saturday off, but for the most part, uh, our society is oriented around Monday through Friday work, Saturday, Sunday off. I'm not trying to lay down a law about Sundays and about Saturdays because that's the exact opposite of what is being taught here. It would be unwise and biblical to do that. It's not a Sabbath and there's no prohibition against work on Sundays. In fact, in an effort to be a good neighbor, confessions of a pastor here, I've actually mowed the lawn in good conscience on Sunday afternoon. And I felt absolutely no guilt about doing it. In fact, because I knew I'm being a good neighbor. My neighbors don't want to see my grass up to my knee. It is a loving thing if I know it's rained all day, it's going to rain all week, this is it, I, I got to go for it. So I'm not laying down laws, I'm not trying to say this is the way it's going to be at Crossway all the time. I'm simply saying what level of priority does mercy and worship have in our hearts? And how does that translate into the decisions we make about our schedules and our lives? Finally, I would simply say that ministering to God's people through acts of mercy isn't limited to Sundays. It's not limited to Sundays. It's not it's like, well, we only do this on the Lord's Day, and the rest of the week we're just, we do our own thing. No, not at all. In fact, just last weekend when I made a really quick trip to see my aunt, there were two members that, that came over and, and they... You know, Melinda and the kids could have got along without them, but it certainly eased the burden. One mowed my grass, the other helped wrangle kids while Melinda was at the grocery store. The, those were very simple, practical demonstrations of mercy towards me and my family in a time of need. The Lord's Day seems to be the ideal for worship and mercy, but any day will do. Loved ones, don't let good formal intentions of religious activities keep you from the very acts of care and mercy that Jesus was known for and as his people, we should be known for. Think about the Lord's day. Ponder it. Consider its significance and then use the Lord's day as a day for worship and mercy, especially given the, the incredible amount of freedom we have in where we live. Father, we are thankful this morning for the freedoms that we do have. God, this country has not always got it right. We've made vast mistakes even in our founding. Took missteps in preparing our documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that could have prevented greater societal sins like slavery. Nevertheless, Father, we 
enjoy a great benefit of Christian theology and belief and practice injected into our society since its founding. Even today, God, though many would not understand it, though many would not even want to accept it, the gospel of Christ has paved a way for so much of the freedoms that we enjoy today. Father, help us not to just think as citizens of this country, as great as it might be despite its problems. Help us to think as citizens of your kingdom. Help us not simply to enjoy the freedoms to vote, the freedoms to live where we want, the the freedom to not have to carry paperwork wherever we go and to, to hide in worship of you. But God, help us to think about the kind of freedoms that we enjoy that allow us to have more time to serve one another more time to serve our society by taking the gospel to them, more time to gather together in fellowship and worship, to experience mutual encouragement and admonishment and teaching. God, these are the greatest gifts that you have given to us in this country. These are the greatest fruits of our freedom. Help us as we think about these men that Jesus encountered who took freedom you gave them and twisted it into a legalistic paradigm for living. And help us not imitate their example. And said, God, may we rest in Christ, our true Sabbath. May we enjoy the spiritual freedom that we have in Him. And God, may we use that freedom to worship and serve you in ways that bring you glory and honor your name. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.